Amen. Amen. Can we thank our worship team as always? So good. Have a seat. Have a seat. Man, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are so grateful that you are here, whether you're in the room, uh, whether you're online with us right now, whether you're in, in the overflow just outside or anywhere else in the building right now listening to this. We're so glad uh, that you are a part of this, that you're here with us. Um, I cannot be more excited uh, about the journey that is ahead of us as we start the second half of our Exodus series here today. And I honestly believe, and I'm not just saying this, but if this is your home church, if this is where you fellowship, if this is the place where you're connected in community and you come here, I believe that the next 14 weeks of your life will truly be transformative to you. Because we're not here to play church, amen? I'm going to try that again one more time. We're not here to play church, amen? We're here to open our hearts and our lives to the transformative work of God's power. And you know, I, I, I said the, the very first words that I said at the beginning of our Exodus series back in the middle of April are no more important than right now as we start the second half today. And the words are this, that there is nothing more powerful than truly being set free. Nothing more powerful for you, for your family, for your marriage, for your work, for your sphere of influence than you truly being set free. Set free from the things that hold you bound to the patterns of this world. Set free from the things that hold you enslaved to addictions and brokenness and hurt. Set free from the things that the enemy has done, is trying to do, and will do in your life. Set free to live the kind of life that Christ has always created you to be. Over the next 14 weeks, we are unpacking what I believe is the most central spiritual journey that there is in our scriptures. It's the journey of Israel going from their slavery in Egypt to uh, the, their freedom in the desert, receiving the formation of their national identity in the desert and wilderness, and then some 40 years later, walking with their freedom into the promised land, into all the things that God has for them. In the next 14 weeks, weeks. We're journeying with Israel through all of this, but the next 14 weeks is not about Israel. It's about you. It's honestly about you. It's about your journey. The book of Exodus is merely a backdrop to the journey that God actually has on his heart for you. And that journey, as we've been talking about in this series, has five movements to it. I, I talked about this in the first half of the series, slavery, promise, liberation, identity, home, and those five things are the ways that the, there are five kind of movements in the book of Exodus in those five things. And what we're starting today and over the next 14 weeks is the final three of those, liberation, identity, and home. And incorporated within the liberation, identity, and home, which is basically chapter seven of Exodus onwards, what's capsulated in there are some of the deepest spiritual truths that there are for not only you getting freedom, but you being able to stay in your freedom. Paul would write many years later, you are free, now be free. In other words, we have a tendency as humans to receive freedom, but then fall back into our old habits. You're going to see over the next 14 weeks that this was Israel's issue. That they received freedom, and yet it was so hard for them to get Egypt out of themselves. And then they would fall back into patterns of old thinking and patterns of ways. But in the next 14 weeks, we're going to see some things that I believe will set you. If you hear them, if you apply them, if you think about them, pray about them, receive them. They're going to set you on a path, not just to be free, but to truly be free. Are you with me, church? The word exodus itself, as I said right at the start of the series, means a departure. 
And one of the questions I asked right at the beginning of the series, I wanted to ask you again as we start the second half of the series today, and that is, what is it that you need to depart from? What is it that is in your heart that you're wanting to depart from? And our departure point, the, the slavery that we have that we want to leave and move away from will be different for every single one of us here. Some of us, it might be, a, it might be an addiction, an addictive behavior to something. Some of us, it might be some emotional, unhealthy emotional attachment to things. For some of us, it might be uh, mistakes that we've made in our businesses and in our marketplace work and that, that we, we've never really been able to forgive ourselves for. For some, it might be abusive relationships, whether in the past or currently, that you're struggling to be free from. From some, it's, it's hurt. It's hurt that has been spoken to you, done to you, whatever that might have been that, that you've carried around for you for years and you've not been able to shake the reality of that hurt. It'll be different for every single one of us. But if you're anything like me, there is a point of departure for you. There is something where you're saying, I, I, I want to be free from this thing. I don't want this thing to hold around my heart, hold around my life anymore. I don't want this thing to, to be the thing that's going to direct my future. I want to be liberated into the identity that Christ has me in the home that he's called me to. And as I move in the trajectory of the Spirit of God, I, I want to feel that liberation so that I can not just be free, but so that I can be an instrument of liberation for others. And if this is your home church... That honestly, the next 14 weeks, I believe, will be life transformative for you. I believe the whole, I, I can't express, it's so hard to express this in a way that really is my heart. As your pastor here, my heart is that you would be free. My heart is so much that you would take a hold of everything we're going to be doing over these weeks with all the different speakers and all the different ways, with the devotional book that we're giving you, all the resources we're providing for you so that you would taste and know that the Lord is good. Amen? That's Exodus. That's what Exodus is all about. It's not a story about a nation in the past that we can learn some historically nice things. Exodus is a pattern of renewal and revival for today. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we see him do for the Israelites, he is still doing for his people today. And he's going to do for you. So where are we? Where are we in the story? Where are we in, in the Exodus today as we step into the second half of what's ahead? Well, to help with that, let, let me give you a little bit of a recap of the journey that we've been on so far and all the things that we kind of sense that God has been teaching and informing us about in the first half of the series. We started back in mid-April in chapter one. And in chapter one, we're introduced to a couple of realities that there is this Egyptian um, authority structure around a person called Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has seen that this immigration group, this group of immigrants that have come into his nation over the last hundred years or so, have now grown to such a large size that he's afraid for his power. In fact, we're introduced to the reality of the feeling of inadequacy and the feeling of kind of like, you know, sort of insecurity. Because Pharaoh is totally insecure. Even though he's the most powerful figure in the world at that point, with an empire that stretched larger than any other empire in that moment, he sees this immigrant group, and he's frozen in fear. The insecurities wreck him. And what we saw in week one is that insecurity is always the primary brokenness that drives the oppression of others. 
any oppression that you'll ever find in your life, anything that you ever find weighted down on or any enslavery that ever comes to you comes from this root of somebody's insecurity, somebody who felt threatened, somebody who felt jealous, somebody who felt like they needed to do something to someone else to make those persons smaller so that they could be bigger. Insecurity is the primary brokenness that drives the oppressions of others. But what we saw in week one was this incredible thing. Two brave Hebrew women who were midwives, who had been ordered by Pharaoh to kill all of the male Hebrew boys, refused to do it, drew a line in the sand, and said, the only authority that we're going to stand under is the authority of God. And in the bravery of putting their own lives on the line, they start the Exodus journey. We see in the beginning of chapter 2, two other women who come along. First, we see Moses' mother, who now that the decree has gone beyond just killing the baby boys, it's now taking young Hebrew boys and drowning them in the river of the Nile. And so she takes, takes her child, Moses, and places him in a basket, refusing to allow him to be drowned and, and sets him off down the Nile River, letting him go in trust of God, knowing that if I place him in this ark, just like how Noah had placed the animals in the ark and let this go, God will do something amazing. And so God then takes another brave woman, Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter sees this Hebrew baby in the basket in the Nile, and she knows that she should turn the basket upside down and drown the child. But instead, she stands against the decree of her father, takes this child, and brings this child into her household in order to be raised as a prince of Egypt himself. And we learned in the second week something quite profound. That stories of redemption and freedom so often occur in the very same places where the worst acts of oppression have occurred. And Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household conflicted. Oh man, he is so conflicted in his identity because he knows that his skin and his blood is Hebrew, but his clothes and his household and his culture is Egyptian. And he's being raised potentially to take over the leadership of Egypt by Pharaoh himself. So he's being raised within a Pharaoh culture, knowing that he's wearing Hebrew skin. And this conflict of identity is a difficult thing for Moses. He doesn't know, am I an oppressor or am I one of the oppressed? And he's caught in the middle of that tension. And one day he sees an Egyptian beating up one of his fellow Hebrews. And he's so incensed in anger that he murders that Egyptian. And in doing that, realizes he's crossed the line. And he needs to flee from Egypt, flee from all the identity and all the things he knew, and he has to run away. And we learned that week something very important, that the starting point of all of our exodus is when we realize that we're all carrying broken identities around with us that cover up the real person that we truly are. And part of our freedom in exodus is to deal with some of those broken identities, to enable them to shift and to change in our lives. And we see... The end of chapter two, how God begins to do that. God shows up for the first time in the story and he presents himself and he says, here's what I've seen. I've seen the slavery and the misery of my people and my heart is turned towards them. And he says, I am in my compassion coming down to help them. And we learned something really important that week, that it's compassion, not judgment, that is the fuel for Exodus. And, and judgment is a reality in the process of Exodus and we're gonna see that actually today. But compassion is the fuel for Exodus. Compassion is the starting point. God didn't show up and go, I'm going to judge. He shows up and says, my heart is broken. So in order to respond to that, he then calls Moses. In the middle of the desert, burning bush. 
And Moses draws over in chapter 3 towards this burning bush, and he recognizes that there's something behind the bush. And God speaks and says, remove your sandals, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And what God is doing is saying, I've moved in compassion. But the first point is to meet with Moses intimately on that broken level that he's in and invite him to take his sandals off so the nakedness of his foot would touch the Spirit of God on the ground. God was calling his people back to intimacy with him. And we learned that week. That all of our exoduses, God doesn't call us to stand back and watch. He invites us to, to draw in and connect. God wants us to be close and intimate with him. Exodus is not something where we go, oh, wow, that's cool. Exodus is an intimate, personal journey with God. Well, not surprisingly, Moses in, in the rest of chapter 3 kind of freaks out a little bit. And he kind of comes before God and he says, I, I, I don't know if I'm adequate to do this. I don't know if I've got the skills to do this. I can't talk properly. I'm, I'm not very much a good leader. I've actually killed somebody before. My resume is pretty bad. And God begins to speak to him and says, it doesn't really matter about your resume. What actually matters is about what I'm about to do with you. And here's the hard thing, Moses. I'm going to call you to go back to the very place that you fled from. I'm going to call you to go back to the very place of your brokenness because unless you go back there, unless you go to the very roots of the place of your brokenness, there will be no liberation. There will be no freedom for you. And we learned something that week that I think is, is so important that we have to understand. That, see, our exodus doesn't begin when we have it all sorted out. Our exodus actually begins when we take the very things that we have and allow those things to be before God, where we actually go back to the very places of our greatest brokenness and have the, the strength to do so. Our exodus actually begins when we're willing to break away from our comfort and step towards the unknown. That's how it starts. You see, it would have been easy for them to stay in the place of comfort, but there was no exodus for Moses in the place of comfort. His comfort was the desert where he had raised a new family. And God says, no, you need to go back to Egypt and get into a place where you're uncomfortable, where you're going to have to deal with some of the stuff that is buried deep inside of you. Only then will you be truly free. And we learned that that has to be our journey too. As hard as it might be, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to uproot the deepest things in us if we truly want to be free. Well, in chapter 4, Moses turns to God and says, well, how am I going to do this? And God says to Moses, well, what is in your hand? And he realizes he's got a shepherd's staff in his hand, and God begins to do all these crazy things with the shepherd's staff in his hands, and he's trying to teach Moses something that we learned that week, that, it, that it's not actually, again, about who we are having it all together. It's actually about this reality that in, in in taking the things that God has given us, even the broken things in us, and relinquishing control of them, that's when God can step in and begin to do it. And we learned that week that some of us actually don't move into Exodus because we're trying to control, we're trying to establish that control for ourselves. And it's in the relinquishing of control, giving it to God, that we actually enable Him to show us what control truly looks like, being free with Him. So in the confidence of this idea that God is with them, in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron, they actually go before Pharaoh for the first time, and they say, let my people go. It's a bold, declarative statement, and Pharaoh's like, who are you? Who, who, who are you? Who is this God? I don't know this God. I'm not going to let your people go. In fact, just because of your arrogance of asking that, I'm going to double down on my slavery for them. I'm going to make it even worse for them. And we learned that week that sometimes in our journeys of Exodus, it actually gets worse before it gets better. 
It's not always a straight path. There are curves and there are twists, and sometimes it's, it's harder before it gets better. And at the end of chapter 5, it's really difficult for Moses and Aaron because not only does Pharaoh hate them, but their own people start to hate them as well. Oh, you've come here to try to help us, but now you're making it worse for us. At the beginning of chapter 6, there's this cry in Moses and Aaron. They feel disillusioned and they feel hated and they feel hurt and they feel like they've been a failure. And God shows up again with his compassion and says, just you wait. He says, you have to understand my heart and my nature. You have to understand who I am and and how I stand with you. I'm going to do some things. And just because I call you into freedom doesn't mean the journey is going to be pain-free. Just because I call you into a place of freedom doesn't mean it's going to be easy, pain-free, suddenly like this. I'm not Santa Claus, I'm God. And I'm going to come and work in such a way that over time you're going to be rebuilt to the person that I want you to be. But it's going to require submission to the journey that I have you on. And in chapter 6, he tells them what that journey is going to be like. He says, I'm going to take you as my own children. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to break off the chains from you. And then I'm going to give you new life. And he lays out the process of Exodus. This idea of taking, blessing, breaking and giving. And we saw that week that when Jesus is in the upper room just before he's about to get arrested and he's doing the the Passover meal with his disciples, he picks up from Exodus chapter 6 that process and he takes the bread and the cup and he blesses it and he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples saying this is the way that freedom and liberation always come. This is what the cross of Jesus is going to be about. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is an exodus for everybody because God takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. Amen. Wow, that was about 10 weeks of teaching in five minutes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. You're caught up on exodus. But the question is, what happens next? And as we, cha- as we step into chapter 7 today, we step into this moment where Aaron and Moses are called once again to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Can you imagine how they must have felt? I mean, this must have been the worst thing for them. Because last time when they went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Pharaoh doubled down on his slavery on, on the Israelites. And now here they are, and God says, okay, it's time to go again. You're going to go in front of Pharaoh again. And you're probably... You're probably thinking, Moses and Aaron, if you're Moses and Aaron, you're probably thinking this. I don't know if this is going to work. Are you with me? And perhaps, as we start this 14-week journey ahead of us, and as I've been standing here telling you that this is going to be the most transformative thing in your life and that God is going to move you into new freedoms like you've never felt before, perhaps some of you, Maybe you're into the Exodus and you've been following the series and everything's been great so far, but there's something in your mind where you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. I, I, I don't know if God's really going to come through for me. And, and the same feeling that Moses and Aaron felt as they stepped before Pharaoh again is perhaps the same feeling that many of us in this room feel as we step into these 14 weeks. I don't know if God's really going to do this. I, I'd like to get freedom from my addiction. I'd like to leave those pains behind me, but I'm not even sure if I can do that. I'm not sure if God's going to do it. I'm not sure if he's going to come through. And we're, and we're filled with this questioning. And, and if that's you, I want you to know you're in a good place. 
Because Moses and Aaron had no idea as they stepped towards Pharaoh in chapter 7 what was going to happen in 7, 8, 9, and 10. They had no idea that the plagues were going to come, that the Passover would happen, that God would redeem them and release them, that they would see the waters uh, of the Red Sea parted, that they would go to Sinai and receive the law. I mean, they had no idea about everything that we know is in the story ahead. And I want you to understand that you have no idea what God has reserved for your story in the next 14 weeks. He's got so much ahead of you. Like, it's almost like if, I, if God could take you and plug you into his brain to see everything that's about to happen for you in the next 14 weeks, you'd be, woohoo! But maybe right now, you're like, I'm not even sure if this is going to work. Anyone with me? So I want to pray as we open God's word together today that God will make this work for you. Father, I just thank you so much for the people in this room online, the overflow, and anywhere else that they're listening. Father, we just are grateful that you are at work. And Lord, we come to you like Moses and Aaron, maybe with that question, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I can get free from this. But Lord, we come to you also in that faith, that little mustard seed of faith that Moses and Aaron had knowing that you can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. All right, let me read this to you. Everybody okay? All right, this is Exodus chapter 6, starting 28 into, into chapter 7. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm about to tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? I added a little bit there, by the way, for dramatic effect. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say to him everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. An amazing set of scriptures here. And in here is the starting point of the liberation phase of Exodus. Because in here, we see some pretty interesting things. We see an idea of hardened hearts, and we see a, a man who has faltering lips, and God telling him to do it anyway. Uh, we, we see judgment and justice, and we see things that maybe when we read it, we're like, that sounds a little harsh. How does that all work out? And here's the crazy thing. The thing that actually unlocks this passage is not actually a deeper dive into God himself. The thing that actually unlocks this passage is a deeper dive into Pharaoh. Because so much of what God does in just these small verses right here is related to who Pharaoh was and the kind of culture in which Pharaoh operated. And so to understand these passages here, we have to actually understand a bit more about Pharaoh. And to help you with that, I want to take you back to Egypt now, back to the very land of the Pharaohs. And I want to take you to one of the most famous places in all the world so that you can understand a bit more about the culture that surrounded Pharaoh himself. Let's have a look. Pharaoh. It was a title that demanded respect, power, and fear. 
Originally derived from the Egyptian compound, which means great house, the title came to mean the great high one or the ruler of the great high house. It was used as early as the first dynasty and designated to the one person in Egyptian society who had all ruling power and authority over everyone else. He owned all the land in Egypt, enacted all the laws, collected all the taxes, and defended Egypt from invaders as the commander-in-chief of the army. In other words, he was the central figure to all Egyptian life, culture, and society. But importantly, he was more than that. You see, in Egyptian life, religion was central to absolutely everything. And one of the important roles that Pharaoh played was an intermediary between the gods and humans themselves. So, for example, in any religious ceremony in ancient Egypt, Pharaoh deputized for the gods. In this way, Pharaoh was not just in control of all of the practical life of Egypt. He was actually in control of all of the spiritual life as well. When Pharaoh acted, it was as if the gods themselves were acting. And in this way, Pharaoh was in control of the whole universe. So not surprisingly, the pharaohs lived in unparalleled grandeur and splendor. In life, their palaces were designed to project power and abundance, and in death, their pyramids were designed to do so for all eternity. The pharaohs surrounded themselves with only what was fitting for one who was a god, and that was vast displays of glorious wealth and opulence. A simple case in point can be found right here near the Sphinx in Giza. Well, none of those ancient palaces are still intact today, but throughout Egypt, you can actually discover elements of their wealth. And I wanna, I wanna show you one of those examples right here. This pillar is actually made of a red granite. And this red granite is not found in any quarries in Egypt at all. In fact, scholars believe that these pieces of granite were actually sourced from Southern Africa, placed on boats, sent up the Nile River, and then finally constructed here in Cairo. Now, get your head around that, because all of that is designed to communicate one simple thing, that anyone who ever comes into this place would know that the person who owns it is really, really, really powerful. So a pharaoh who was God and a palace outrageous in its opulence and wealth, all designed to communicate power, prestige, and authority. So stop for a moment and think what it would have been like for Aaron and Moses to receive the call of God to go to Pharaoh and command the Israelites to be let go. And then stop and think what it would have been like for them to walk into the actual palace, to be surrounded by all that power and wealth, and actually only being there with the, with the clothes on their backs and those two staffs in their hands. Could you imagine how much fear they must have felt? But then here's the crazy thing. They're in that palace and they're confident. They're putting their trust and their faith in God that even in the place of Pharaoh's greatest comfort and authority, he would actually bend to their will. I mean, none of that actually makes sense. And I've come to think that faith often operates that way often in a place where things don't make sense. I mean, I think you could actually define faith like this, radical obedience 
amidst crazy, overwhelming odds. Or put it in Moses and Aaron's terms, two feeble shepherd's staffs against red granite pillars. Now the question you have to ask yourself is simply this, would you have gone? Is uh, staggering to me the the faith that they must have had. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's really staggering to me how they must have felt walking into that place, believing that Pharaoh might respond, dressed in their shepherd's clothes with their little staffs, amongst all that opulence and power and wealth. And in fact, Moses, when he's telling you the story, he's honest about it. He says these things. He says, I'm a person of faltering lips. How am I going to be able to do this? But then on the other side, God says, I am the Lord. Go to Pharaoh and tell him what I'm about to tell you. There's this tension in the passage between how Moses felt about himself and his own inadequacies and who God was and how God was calling Moses not to focus on his resume, but to focus on God, to focus on who he is. And he was saying, when you go before Pharaoh, you don't go in the strength of your own power. You don't go in the strength of how smart you are. You don't go in the the gifts and the talents that you have. You go literally in obedience. You go in faithfulness. And when you go, I am the Lord. I'm the one who's going to work. I'm the one who's going to be powerful. I'm the one who has all of that authority. You don't need any of that. You just need to be faithful. Which is crazy to me because so often we don't think of it that way. We think it is about how strong we are. If I'm going to get my freedom, if God's going to give me exodus, it's about how I deserve it. I need to prove that I deserve it to him or, or I need to work really hard or do more quiet times or whatever it might be. We begin to think that it's defined by who we are. Oh, I'm a person of faltering lips. How could this ever happen? And God shows up and says, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about your inadequacies. God never calls you to be adequate for the tasks that he puts before you. He calls you to be faithful. And being faithful by its very definition means you're not adequate. (laughs) Because if you were adequate, you wouldn't need faith. You'd just do it. And you'd do it because you were adequate to do it. See, God puts us in situations, circumstances, where our adequacy is not enough to achieve freedom. You will not get lasting freedom in your life through your own adequacy. It'll only come through your faithfulness to what God calls you to do, even when it's above and beyond what you think you can be able to do. Are you with me, church? What what really blows my mind about this whole scenario is that then God later on in the passage actually tells Moses and Aaron that although they're going to go and speak what God asked them to speak, they're going to fail. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's not going to listen to you. (laughs) Can you imagine what this is like for Moses and Aaron? It's like, okay, all right, we'll go. We'll be obedient to what you're asking for us and we're going to get there and you've already told us that it's going to fail. What's the point in going? Are you with me? But it's because we humans define success so differently to how God does. See, see we, we define success through achievement, through outcomes, through whether something works out or not, or we achieve something, or we win or not. And you can imagine Moses and Aaron going, well, if you told us this is going to fail, why would we even bother going in the first place? And God's like, I define success differently. God does not define success by what you achieve by how you obey. That's 
the definition of success in God's eyes. And the number one thing that will set you up in the next 14 weeks towards your freedom will be the small, simple moments of obedience that no one ever knows about. I know firsthand that the greatest moments that I've ever had as a pastor have been moments that no one has ever seen. Moments where I made a simple decision to close that website. A simple decision to write that check. A simple decision to whatever it might be in the workplace, whatever it might be here in church, whatever spiritual thing, those simple things that I did in my heart that no one else saw, no one else knew about, those are the places that when I get into heaven, God's going to go, wow, Andrew, you did that. Not look at how big of a church you had. Are you with me? Your success is defined by the obedience of your heart, not by the achievements of your hands. I'm going to say that again because I just made that up and it was pretty good. Your success is going to be defined by the obedience of your heart, not by the achievements of your hands in God's heart. Now notice what happens next. Verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Now this sounds like it's contradicting everything I just said. Because I just said it's not about Aaron and, 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 and Moses' resumes, and God's going to do it all. But then in the very next verse, God says, I'm going to make you like God before Pharaoh. Which kind of sounds like suddenly Moses is going to look like a God to Pharaoh. It suddenly sounds like suddenly Moses is going to be mighty and powerful and have it all together, and Pharaoh's going to see him and go, oh my gosh, there's a greater God here than me. That's not exactly what's happening at all. In fact, the way to unpack this is to understand the Egyptian culture that sits behind it. See, whenever anybody went into the palace of Pharaoh and went towards the throne room with Pharaoh and had an audience with Pharaoh, they would always address Pharaoh by the deity of the God that they worshipped. Because Pharaoh was the representation of all the deities on earth. That's what we saw in the film, right? He represented all the deities. So if, if, if an Egyptian servant went to Pharaoh in his court, he would say, Oh, great and mighty Ra, which was the sun god. Oh, great and mighty Ra, I would love for you to do this for me, or this is what I say to you, or whatever. So, so Pharaoh would always be addressed by the deity that was being worshipped. Are you, are you with me? So what God's doing here is really fascinating. He says, I'm going to send you in, and Moses, you're going to be like God in Pharaoh's presence, and Aaron is going to be your prophet. In other words, there's suddenly going to be another deity in Pharaoh's presence. And he's not used to that, because he's the only deity in the land. But I'm going to make you like God, a deity before him. And here's the crazy thing. That's going to completely subvert his power. That's going to completely change everything for him. And, and he's not going to know how to respond or react to that. And here's even the most beautiful thing. You're going to go and do this dressed in smelly shepherd's clothes. And you're going to be like God to him. And he's going to look at you and he's going to go, how can an impoverished nomadic shepherd be a representative of a God? That's what he's going to think. How can this one be a representative of God. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel completely overwhelmed and completely inadequate? Recently, I was at this event. Uh, it was a small private fundraising event, and I was sitting on a table with eight people, and I had the responsibility of trying to raise some funds uh, for a charity organization in the city. And around the table of eight people, three of them were US dollar billionaires. 
US dollar billionaires. I have never felt more insignificant in my life than sitting around a table with three US dollar billionaires who were incredibly powerful, incredibly successful, really nice people. I was hoping that they would be mean and angry and horrible, but they were really nice people too. Not only super wealthy, but nice. And I'm sitting there around this table and I'm listening to their stories and I'm feeling like I'm kind of like sliding under the table a little bit, you know, like. And as I'm sitting there, I honestly, I hear God's spirit whisper in my ear, how could an impoverished Hong Kong church shepherd be a representative of a God? And I felt like what God was saying is, do you understand where true power lies? And these were really nice people and great people, very successful people, which I really admire. But God was saying, true power does not lie in the things of this world. True power lies in salvation, redemption, and hope, and grace, and love. And I tell you, in this room, online, in the overflow, there are representatives of this God. You need to understand that when you're called into a situation where you feel inadequate, overwhelmed, when you're in a sphere of influence where you feel like you don't have any power, the tendency naturally is for you to shrink away. But you need to rise up in those moments. You are a representative of the living God. Jesus has died and shed his blood so that you would know new life. The same spirit that was in Christ that raised him from the dead is now in you. Take your stand. You're a representative of God's true hope. And I think Hong Kong, more than ever, needs people to go, I am a representative of the one true God. That's not arrogant on our part, but that's us putting ourselves into a place where we can administer the hope of Christ, knowing that we are in Christ in the world. Are you with me? Now, very quickly, notice what happens next. Verse 3 says this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. This is weird. Because they've been called to bring freedom. They've been called to ask for the Israelites to go. And then God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to listen to you. And scholars have debated for years and years and years around what does it mean for God to harden someone's heart? How do we get our heads around? Because on the surface, what it, what it sounds like is how can a just God harden someone's heart and then punish them? That doesn't seem like a just God. It doesn't sound, kind of seem like a God we would want to worship. What, what is happening here? Well, what's sitting behind all of this is, is, is the reality of judgment and the judgment that's going to come. I, I said earlier that compassion was the fuel for Exodus, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't judgment within the Exodus story. And we're going to see this week, next week, and the week after what that judgment turns to look like, tends to look like. But in this moment, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's important that you understand the word that Moses uses here. It's a Hebrew word, of course. It's the word kahe. Uh, the, the word literally means, or kazak. The, the word literally means to fasten a hold of or to strengthen something. Now, what's really important about this is that you, you have to understand that, that for God to harden something with this word, what it means is that, that God strengthens the direction that something's already on. In other words, that there's already been a decision, there's already been a turning of the heart, there's always already been a posture of the heart, and God is going to come and fasten, strengthen that direction. The modern day equivalent would be the idea of doubling down. Somebody's made a decision, and now they're doubling down on that decision. Does that make, make sense to you? 
So, so when it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, what it's really teaching us here is that God sees the direction of Pharaoh's heart. He looks into Pharaoh's heart and he sees that he's already decided never to let the Israelites go. We, we know that because we've seen that in chapter 5. In chapter 5 where he said, I don't know this God. I'm not going to bow to this. This is not going to happen. He's already set the direction of his heart. It's really important that you understand this. When it says in the text that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's not saying that God is making Pharaoh do something he doesn't want to do. It's not talking about God overtaking the free will of Pharaoh and suddenly taking a soft, pliable, loving heart and making it hard and nasty so that he can punish him. What it's saying is the direction of Pharaoh's heart had already been made up. The decision had already been made. And God's going to fasten that, strengthen that, so that it'd be brought into a place of judgment. I want you to see the judgment element of this. Verse, uh, verse 4 onwards. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Again, to understand this, you have to understand the Egyptian cultural context here. At the time that Moses is standing in front of Pharaoh, there was already in circulation what was called the Book of the Dead in Egypt. And the Book of the Dead was a story of, of lots of different deities and how they interacted with humanity. And one of those deities was Anubis. Anubis was the deity of the decision of, of the future, the eternal future of people. And in this story that's found in the Book of the Dead, this person called Ami comes before Anubis, a little bit like in a throne room like Pharaoh. And as Ami comes before Anubis, Anubis is going to make a judgment as to whether Ami will have eternal good life or eternal bad life. And the way that he judges, as you can see in this beautiful hieroglyphic, is he takes his heart and he places his heart on a scale. And then on the other side of the scale, there's a feather that's placed there. It's the feather of righteousness. That's what it's called in the Book of the Dead. So there's this heart of Ami on one side of the scale and the feather of righteousness in the other. And the idea is that Anubis is going to judge the heaviness of Ami's heart. And if that heart has any evil in it, if that heart has any evil actions in it, then the scales are going to tip in the wrong balance and then he'll be sentenced to a life uh, of death. That's basically the way it worked within the Egyptian thinking. Now, God knows all of this, and he picks up on all of this, and, and he says to Moses, Aaron, you're going to go, and I'm going to judge Pharaoh. I'm going to harden his heart because he's already made a decision. The scales already are imbalanced, and I'm going to show that the scales reveal that Pharaoh's heart is wanting. By whether you look at it through the Hebrew culture where they know that, that Pharaoh's heart is bad because of their slavery for so many years, or if you look at it through the, through the Egyptian culture, which already understands that there's a scale of righteousness that has to be balanced, Pharaoh's heart is wanting. And God is saying, I'm going to judge that heart publicly in Egypt so that all the Egyptians will see exactly this, that there is an imbalance of the scales of Pharaoh's heart. Because actions are just, whether you look through the Hebrew lens or the Egyptian lens, of the actions and thoughts that were in his heart. Is that helpful? Now, I want you, we're finally, we're finishing here. I know I'm almost done. Are we okay for five more minutes? This is the best five minutes, so that's why I want you to be here. It says this, verse 5. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So why does God judge? Why is God going to judge the weight of Pharaoh's heart? Why does he harden the heart in order to, to show that judgment, to show the direction that Pharaoh had already decided in his own free will? It's so that Egypt would come to know that I am God. 
Now, when you read it like you see it on the screen here, it almost sounds like God's like, I'm going to judge Pharaoh and all of Egypt so they will know that I am the mighty God. <laughs> you know, like it almost has this kind of resonance of, of like that evil laugh to it, right? This is not what God is doing here. What's fascinating to me is that the, the word that Moses chooses for will know is the very same word that's used to speak of biblical marriage and the intimacy physically that's found in biblical marriage, to know someone. In other words, it's an incredibly intimate word. It's a word that is defined by relationship and personal invitation. So God is not saying, I'm going to judge Pharaoh in Egypt so that everybody will know how bad they are. He's saying, I'm going to judge Pharaoh and I'm going to judge Egypt so through the judgment all will come to know, would know, intimately, personally, be available to come into relationship with me. This is him offering grace. This is him saying that there is this grace element to it. There is judgment, but mercy triumphs over judgment. We come to see that in its fullness in the work of Jesus Christ. But even here in the first Exodus, we see mercy triumphing over judgment. Yes, there will be judgment. Yes, the heart is hard. Yes, the heart needs to be dealt with. But there is mercy that is coming, and that mercy is even for the Egyptians. And here's the crazy thing. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, a whole bunch of Egyptians go with Israel to the promised land of their own free choice because they had come to know, to see, and to taste that the Lord is good. So what does all this have to say to you? as we start this second phase of our Exodus series. You need to understand that God indeed has the prerogative and the ability to take a hard heart and harden it. But he also has the power to take a hard heart and soften it. He also is a God who is able to offer to the Egyptians themselves the ones who had enslaved his people for close to 400 years and say, if there is a kernel, a mustard seed of your desire to turn towards me, I will soften your heart. Pharaoh's heart had been made up. His heart was already there. God had already perceived that there was no mustard seed of faith or hope or turn or change for Pharaoh, so he hardens his heart towards that aim. But for everybody else, everybody in Egypt, the offer was there. Would you allow me to soften your heart so that you would know that I am your God? As we start this second phase of Exodus, that's the call on us too. Because if you're anything like me, your heart has moments of great, beautiful softness and joy, and it also has parts of hardness to it. And perhaps you're here today and you recognize that there is some hardness in your heart too. This whole passage has been about God examining the heart. He doesn't look at the surface. He doesn't look at the resume. He doesn't look at the achievements. He looks constantly at the heart of humanity. And he looks at Pharaoh's heart and says, hmm. But he looks at your heart. And he looks at even the hard parts of your heart. And he looks at your hope and your faith and your desire for his mercy. And he has the power to take even the hard things in you and soften them. For some of you, your hearts are hard because it's been years of pain and hurt from something that's happened to you in the past. For others, your heart's hard because you're continuing to make choices, habits and choices that bring you into sin and harden your heart. Whatever it might be for all of us, God's grace, his goodness, 
can soften even the hardest parts of who we are. And the number one thing that you begin the liberation phase of Exodus in is to bring your heart before God and say, I want to know you. I really want to know you. And I know that in the work of judgment and justice, you take all the things in my heart and you judge them fairly. But your ultimate heart is to know. It's for me to know you and you to know me. And that's how I want to pray for you as we start this journey together. I wonder whether you'd stand with me and I'm going to pray for us.